there's an experience I have on a fairly regular basis. I will hear somebody say something, or I'll, I'll hear a phrase that's become just part of our vocabulary. And I go, where did that come from? Like, where did that start? I'm just curious like that. And thank God we have Google to be able to answer questions like that. But I'll just ask the question, like, where did that come from? Like, where did that start? And, uh, and there's a phrase that's inherent to this series that we're in and the struggle that it's addressing. And I'm not sure that this is the source of that phrase, but it definitely is the time when it became clear that it was going to be part of our vocabulary. Enjoy this moment with me right now. as we get started today, uh, some of you are having flashbacks right now because <laughs> you saw somebody that you know in that video or you saw maybe a little bit of yourself. Um, second thought I have is that I don't understand the desire to recreate the 80s. Like, I, it just seems like everybody is trying to bring that back. I was texting with Jamie, our worship leader, this week. We, we were watching a video of a, a worship uh, team leading a song that we want to do, the future cornerstone. And I was like, why are they all dressed like they're in the 80s? It's just so weird. I, I asked him if he could lead with a headband this morning, but he told me no. Um, <laughs> But that song by Loverboy, this was pretty much the peak of their career, was called Working for the Weekend. And I'm not sure if that phrase was around before they recorded that song, but it, it is the iconic moment that burned that song into our brains, working for the weekend. And it's one thing to kind of look back on it and go, hey, that was kind of silly or that was weird, the 80s. But the, the, the harder piece is that for many of us, this isn't a song that we sang 30 years ago. This is the way in which we live. For many of us, this is the lens through which we see our lives that we're working for the weekend. That we endure the five days in our work week to get to the weekend. And if you do the math for that, that means that this big pie piece over here is your work week, and this is your weekend. And if you're like me, you're thinking this looks a little bit like Pac-Man, and um, it's easy which one is gonna eat the other. 71% of our lives is spent in weekdays, and 29% of our lives is spent in the weekend. And so if you're punting or enduring the 71% to get to the 29%, then you're wasting and burning the majority of your life working for the weekend. 
And it isn't just a, a kind of secular experience. It's also a spiritual experience. For many of us, the time in which we connect with God, the time in which we think about God being present and active and involved in our lives, the time in which we experience God is confined to this time that we're in right now. Maybe if we're lucky, you add a little bit of a community group experience in there, or maybe serving in there. I mean, you add those three, that's about three or three and a half hours. And again, I didn't take math in college, I tested out of it, but I can do a little bit of math. And this is that experience. This little sliver is worship service and and community group, and this big, big part is all the time you don't spend at church, or you don't spend in a community group. And if you're not just working for the weekend, but you're working from the weekend, you're going to experience a lot of frustration. Because you can't live off of this all through this. If this time right now is the only time during the week you're actually present with God, aware of God, connected to God, in conversation with God, and you're trying to make it through all of this time, off of that little sliver and you're going to spend the majority of your week hungry, thirsty, struggling. At the heart of this series we've been in to start 2019 called Present Over Perfect has been about what does it mean to begin a new year actually present with God and paying attention to him? What does it mean to be present with the people around us and not just distracted? And distraction isn't a millennial problem. I was at Costco yesterday, and there was a 75-year-old woman driving through the parking lot with her hands on her, her steering wheel, holding her phone, looking, and she almost ran over me and my three kids. This is not a millennial problem. Distraction and lack of presence is a human problem, and we've been talking about it, and how do we overcome it? In week one in this series, we, we said that the life that we want cannot be achieved It can only be received. It it can't be found through achieving more and achieving more and achieving more. It only comes when we receive it from God. And then last week we talked about Sabbath, and we said that Sabbath isn't a burden to us. It's in fact God's gift to us, that God gives us a gift that says, hey, you weren't designed to live always on. You were designed to live in this rhythm between work and rest. And I designed you to need rest and to find in that rest me refueling you. So as we bring this series to a close today, I wanted to ask a question and process it through it with you, if that's all right with you today. And that question's on your hand that if you want to fill in some blanks this morning. That question is this, what if, just a big what if, what if we became present with God in our work and our rest? What if we became present with God in our work and our rest? Some of us are, okay, I'm I'm resting right now. I'm not at work. I can be present with God in that quiet moment. But what does it mean, or what would it look like, or what if we became present with God even while we were working, not just when we were Sabbathing and resting? What if we were present with God in the midst of both our work life and our rest life? And I've been processing through this question long before you even thought about it. And so I've got three consequences for living in this new rhythm. Now, these aren't the only three consequences. You probably could come up with your own. And if you can, I'd encourage you to do that this week as you process this message, maybe with your community group. But I've got three consequences. If we did this, if that what if became reality, here's three things that would happen. And here's the first one. We'd stop believing the lie that work is evil. 
will stop buying into the lie that work is evil. Inherent in Loverboy's worldview that influenced working for the weekend is that you work for the weekend because work is something to get through or endure. It's something evil. And it's actually an American idea that we just kind of put up with work. We work for the man and then we go do what we want. But it's not actually a biblical idea. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Genesis. It's hard to miss. It's the first book in the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see the beginning of work. Beginning in verse 15. In Genesis 2, this is what we read. That the Lord God took the man, who we know as Adam, and he put him in the garden of Eden to what? To work it and to keep it. So God took man after creating him. He put him in the garden. He said, okay, here's your work. Here's the stuff that I want you to do. I want you to work for, work and care for this garden. And then in verse 19 to 20, it says, Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and the beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper for him. And that's the creation of Eve. But what's so interesting is that we see before there's sin, before there's a fall, before there's brokenness in the world, there's work. And the first job that God gave Adam was to tend the garden. The second job was to name all of creation. Now, how many of you in this room have a child or you have a friend who has a child? Raise your hand. Most hands should go up. You have a child and you know somebody has a child. If you've been around when a child was born, you know one of the hardest tasks is naming that child. It is a lot of work, especially if you're naming them with someone, which is why I think God waited to give him Eve, because it would have taken twice as long to name all these animals. I can tell you, my wife and I have what I call vigorous discussions about what we were going to name our three children, and I lost on every single one because I had some pretty terrible names that I came up with. But, but if you've been around somebody who's named a child, you know that it's hard work. Now multiply that thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times. It would be exhausting. And yet man hasn't sinned. We're in Genesis 2, not Genesis 3 yet. Genesis 3 is where a man says, God, we've got this. We're going to do it our way. We don't really trust you. We're going to go our own way. That's where sin enters the world. So before there is sin, there's work. And we in our culture buy into this myth that work is bad and weekends are good. Now, part of that's true. I think weekends are good. I've had a great weekend right now, and I hope it continues. But, but we buy into the lie that work is bad or work is evil and leisure is good. And when we buy into that lie that we're fed in this culture, what happens is that we fail to experience God's presence in our work because we think God's not found in work. Work is bad. Even in the stories of Jesus' life in the Gospels, we see this. In John 5, it says, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working too. God's perfect. God's sinless. And God works. And if you go to the very end of the Bible, we were in Genesis 2, if you go to the very end of the Bible, the very last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 22, it says, no longer will there be any curse. 
The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. The word that's here translated in English, serve, in Greek means to work or to worship or to do the bidding of another. We're going to have work in heaven. Now, some of you are like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have a boss in heaven. You're going to have the best boss ever, actually. Um, but, but heaven is not just going to be us all sitting out on our porch relaxing for eternity. We're actually going to have meaningful work to do. And if you roll your eyes or you feel like a little bit less excited to go to heaven now, that's because you have bought into the American teaching about work, not the biblical teaching of work. See, the American teaching of work is that your life begins when you can stop working. And what I find so fascinating is I have met person after person in my life, both before I moved to Prescott and after moving to Prescott, who are struggling with meaning and purpose in their latter years. And they're finding the American narrative about work disappointing and disillusioning because they no longer have meaningful work to do and they feel like their life lacks purpose. One of my favorite scriptures of all is in the book of Acts, chapter 13, where the writer says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and he was laid with his fathers. David's life was work, purpose, meaning, and when God was done with him, he was done. Some of you have a job. You have a vocation. You're going to go somewhere tomorrow, or maybe you're going to go somewhere later today. And that work is a place where you can experience God. That work is a place where you can be present with God. That's a place where you can honor and worship God. As the Apostle Paul said, we have the opportunity to do whatever we do for the glory of God. You can not only worship God there, you can also worship him here and vice versa. But some of you said, Scott, I don't have a job anymore. That's okay. You still have work to do because you're still alive. And I've said this before, and I'm going to keep saying it until some of you believe it. If you're not dead, God's not done. You're still here for a reason. God still has work for you to do. Now, it may be the work you used to do. You may have physical limitations now that you didn't have then, but God created you for a purpose. And like David, while your purpose is still going on, he's still going to allow you to be alive. And when he's done with you, he'll be done with you. And so here's the question I want to pose to you today. What would it mean for you to be present with God in your work? What would it mean for you to not just be present in the time when you're doing nothing and go, okay, I can be with God then, but what would it mean for you to be present with, paying attention to, expecting God to be around and moving wherever you are, including in your work, whatever that work is? That's the first consequence. If we became present with God in our work, we would stop seeing work as evil. Number two, we would remember that all days are not created equal. If we were present with God in our rest and our work, we would begin to realize that not all days are created equal. In the Psalms, one of the writers says these beautiful, powerful words. He said, God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to understand the differences between the days that we're living. Why? So that we can then live those days with wisdom. In the ancient world, one of the dominant languages was Greek. In Greek, there is two words for time. 
The first word that I want to talk about for time is the word chronos. And it was chronological or sequential time. This is where we get our English word chronology or chronological. When you put something in order, you're putting it in chronological or sequential order. That's, that's chronos. Think about your watch. Think about your calendar. That's chronos. And for many of us, that's how we see it. Well, it's Monday, it's Tuesday, it's January, it's February, it's March, it's December. That's the only concept we have of time. But if we're going to understand and number our days and live with wisdom, we also need the other kind of time the Greeks had, and that was called kairos. It was the right, proper, or opportune time for action. If somebody tells you, hey, it just isn't the right time right now, they're not saying four o'clock is worse than two o'clock. They're saying this moment isn't right. Or they're saying, hey, this is, this is the moment. We have to seize it. This is a golden opportunity. This is a Kairos moment. And that idea is based upon this idea that there are seasons for things. That not all days are created equal. That not all seasons are created equal. And when you begin to live as if all days are created equal, you say things like, another day, another dollar. As if every day is the same, and you're just a money-making machine. You exist to go to work, collect a paycheck, come home, and that's the meaning of your life. But all days are not created the same. It isn't just another day and another dollar. You were created for more. And there are times in your life that are times and opportunities for a unique work that is not possible at any other time. The writer of Ecclesiastes says this in a passage many of us know well. He says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. If you've read Ecclesiastes 3, and he, go, he goes on to describe there's a time for life and a time for death. There's a time for celebrating and a time for mourning. There's a time for everything, and in those times, they are times for one thing that are not a time for another thing. And if you're in a season where you view all of life as the same, what will happen, in my opinion, is you will drift into a pattern where your work knows no boundaries. Where you struggle to rest because every day is a work day. I say this because I learned this pattern really, really young. My first real job I had was the summer after my sophomore year of college. I was working as an assistant to some executives and during that time, it was the first time I really began to experience the always-on, always-available access of technology. And so at the end of that summer, I went on vacation with my family to San Diego. And I can remember sitting on the beach in San Diego, I think it was Mission Beach, and I was taking phone calls from my office. I'm 20 years old, taking phone calls on the beach on vacation. My mom looks at me and she's like, what are you doing, son? I said, oh, I'm just, I'm, fi I'm fixing stuff. And she goes, this is not time for work. This is time for rest. And I learned that day that I was really good at being present in my work and I was going to struggle to be present in my rest because not all days are created equal. And if you struggle with this, one of the things that, that you're going to experience that I found, and we can have empathy with one another, is that when you see all days as created equal, you begin to force things. You go, it is. It may be at the wrong moment, but I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to force it. I'm going to make it work. And that's why I was so attracted to Matthew 11 for the key text for this series, where in the message, Eugene Peterson says that when we take a real rest with God, we begin to learn the unforced rhythms of grace. What does that mean? I have no idea. 
because that is a huge struggle for me. Because again and again in my life, life will not go the way that I had planned. And then Scott will make it happen. Scott will force it. And I'll let you guess how that goes. Consequences happen that I didn't see. Circumstances will not go the way that I want to. And when you live your days as if there is not a time and a place for every season, when there is time for work and time for rest and God is present in all of it, you will begin to force things. When in actuality, God is inviting you into a pattern and a posture where he says, come to me and learn from me. And I will teach you the unforced rhythms of grace. I'll introduce you to a way of life that is not only good for your work, it is good for your soul. So here's the next question. What would it mean for you to be present with God in your rest? What would it mean for you to not just take time off of work to crash and sleep and catch up? But find in that rest God there refreshing and renewing you. Because for some of you, you just go so hard until you crash. Typically, you get sick. And then you look for some drug or some sleep to renew you, forgetting that the rest your, need, your soul needs can only come from God. So what would it mean for you to be present with God in your rest? And then number three, if we did this, we would begin to give our best to the people and the things which matter most to us. We would begin to give our best to the people and the things that matter most to us if we were present with God in our work and in our rest. In the book of 2 Corinthians, there's a great famine going on in the world, and Paul begins to talk to the people in Corinth about the generosity of some other people in Macedonia. And here's what he says. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He says, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. These people in Macedonia were incredibly poor. And when they learned about a famine in another area of the world, they gave generously, not out of their riches, but out of their poverty, because they loved God and they loved people. What Paul is saying is that it's very obvious what matters most to them by what they did. And the truth is, for a lot of us, if we were asked, hey, what's most important to you? We would list off things. And some of those things might actually be the things that are most important to you. Or, maybe, they might be the things that you say are most important to you. But they're not actually the things that are most important to you. The things that are most important to you are the things that you give your best to. And here's the rub. In our world today, many times, we're giving our best to things and we're giving our worst to people. Many times, people in our lives are having to compete with things. Max Lucado says it this way. He says, God gives us people to love and things to use, not things to love and people to use. And when we don't learn to be present with God in our work and present with God in our rest, when we don't see God as present with us everywhere, inviting us to be present with him, what happens is we begin to use people instead of using things. And we view people as interruptions to our work. Now, some interruptions are kind of funny, like this one. 
if you remember the Kanye West Taylor Swift interruption. Some interruptions are not good ones, but other interruptions are opportunities to see what's truly important. I want you to think about the last time you got interrupted. How did you react? When's the last time you were in the middle of doing something really important and somebody interrupted you? How did you treat them? I know that I have lost the plot in my life when I begin to treat people as interruptions to my really important work. Henry now says it this way. He says, I used to complain about all the interruptions to my work until I realized these interruptions were my work. Some of us who are more task-oriented or who tend to love work, what happens is that people interrupt us, and when they interrupt us, we get frustrated with them, we get angry with them, and we treat them as if they're less important than our work. You don't have to be a full-time employed person to treat people as if they're interruptions to your work. Do the people in your life that are most important to you, do they have to compete with things and your work for your attention and your affection? And is it possible that you're so present with your work that you're not present with the people who matter most? A great way to cut through that noise is answering this question. What's important right now? What's important right now? Is it you get that thing done or is it that you love the person right in front of you? Is it that you get caught up on your work, the work that you say you're never going to be caught up on, or is it that you show up and you're present with the people around you? Will this thing be important 20 years from now that you're working on, or will you wish that you had paid attention and been present with that person that's in front of you that you have a limited opportunity to love? What's important now? And part of this series has been learning to live in this balance of work and rest and find that rhythm well. And so I want to invite a couple friends up on stage with me right now to talk to me about this. I'm going to ask Pastor Josh and Pastor Clovis to come up here. So give them a round of applause as they come. So some of you may know that Pastor Josh, who is our youth and family pastor, uh, just wrapped up a sabbatical in October and November. Sabbatical is basically an extended Sabbath. And uh, Josh, one of the things that, that we've been talking about and I wanted you to share with the people is as you've come out of that, that, that extended period of rest, how is that impacting and influencing how you do your work now? How is your work impacted now because of that Sabbath? Yeah, so a big part of that sabbatical was really like a reset button for me. You know, if you think of a computer, if it stays on for a long time, it all of a sudden becomes laggy and it slows down. Nothing's necessarily wrong with it. You just need to turn it off, let it rest, it boots back up, and it, and it starts functioning again. And that's kind of what that sabbatical was for me. It was, it was almost like a reset button and a, a reminder for me that just like what you were talking about, um, the work is, is people, especially as Jesus followers, because it doesn't matter what your occupation is, um, but even as pastors, it's so easy to forget that our call is to love God and love people, and, and we do that by making disciples. And all of a sudden, you know, we just get lost in, in doing things that, like what you were just talking about, people become an interruption instead of actually seeing them as the work that we're called to, to invest in. And so, you know, that, that 
extended time kind of reset me and helped me remember that um, people, all of you guys, the, the children downstairs, you know, that's our work. That's what we're supposed to be investing in. And so it's, it's like every morning I wake up and I, I kind of reboot or, or reset myself and remember it's not about my to-do list because that's always going to have something on it. At the end of the day, it's always going to be there. Um, people won't always be there. And so I want to invest that time wisely. So that's kind of helped me um, look at each day a little bit different. Cool. On the opposite side, you took an extended period of rest, and now you're back in the day-to-day workflow. How did taking that extended rest impact how you now integrate rest and Sabbath in your ongoing life? How are you balancing those now? Because you can't just go away for two months now. How do you, how do you find that pattern and that rhythm now? Yeah, so again, you know, that reset mind mindset. Uh, a day off does not mean a Sabbath. And people used to say, hey, when's your Sabbath day? And I'd be like, Friday. It's, it's my day off. It's a day I don't do work. But I, it wasn't a true Sabbath because I would just do nothing. It was leisure. Uh, and, and this was, again, reading that, that Rest of God book by Mark, Mark Buchanan was a big part of this. But, um, you know, Sabbath is really being present with God so much so that he eclipses everything else in your life. And that he becomes bigger and more important than everything else. And you find great rest in that and great joy in that. And then you can live from that, uh, you know, the, the rest of the day and, and on to the week. And it's, it's taking those, those days that I don't have, quote, work and spending, them, spending that time or at least a part of that time with Jesus. Again, so much so. You got to be with him long enough that he eclipses those worries and those fears and those anxieties and all of the stuff that just seems to weigh you down. Until you realize, like, wow, he really is bigger than all of these things. That I really can um, be, be present with him and, and rest in him and allow him to impact uh, the rest of my day or the rest of my week. That's really good. Um, we also have Clovis up here with us. And uh, Josh, you're the longest tenured staff member here, over 10 years. Um, Clovis is one of the next longest ones. Clovis has been a part of our church for six and a half years and um, led our church through a, a transition season leading to me coming here. Uh, Clovis mentioned in his sermon at the end of 2018 that he had what I'm calling the terrible, no good, very bad year of 2018 for Clovis, where he uh, lost a couple people who are important in her life, his, his mom and his dad. And, uh, and so, Clovis, you're, you've been kind of processing what's God's next step for you, uh, and you have some things to share with the church here. Yes, yeah, so I'm getting ready to go on sabbatical as well. I'll be taking uh, February, March, and April. And um, first of all, I want to say thanks to the elders and Scott for allowing me to be able to do that. Um, you know, we read the passage earlier in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, in the message where it starts out saying, are you, are you weary? Are you worn out? You know, I kind of relate to that. You know, I am feeling weary, a little worn out. Uh, looking forward to being able to pull away and do as uh, Josh did and just really concentrate on my relationship with God, be re-energized uh, with my relationship with God, reconnecting with him and getting things in the proper priority and focus as he described um, also, you know, just kind of looking to be re-energized in all areas of my life, <clears throat> uh, spiritually, of course, but emotionally, uh, um, also and uh, physically, etc. Uh, also, really wanting to spend the time focusing in on my relationship with my wife, uh, which has kind of taken a toll just through all the, the, the changes and challenges that we've been through and, and just the work of being in ministry. 
So one of the things that we're going to be doing is uh, we're going to be attending a, a retreat that's for pastors and pastors' wives and missionaries and their wives. It's uh, put on by, by a ministry called Sunscape Ministries. It's just about ministering to pastors and missionaries. Uh, it's a week-long, seven-day, seven-night uh, retreat that will be happening actually in Georgia. They have locations in Georgia and Colorado and New York, but the one that was available was in, in Georgia. And um, the neat thing is that the, the person and couple that's going to be leading this is actually the uh, first lead pastor that I served under uh, full-time after seminary, and I was his first full-time hire. So he and his wife, who we know very well, um, served alongside for five years, uh, will be leading that retreat. So really looking forward uh, to that. Also uh, planning on going back to my hometown and reconnecting there. Haven't been there in a long time. Then going back up to see where my parents are buried. Still going through the grieving process with the loss of my parents and still wanting to kind of process that. Um, want to do some reading. Uh, there's the books, you know, that uh, Josh just mentioned. And the, the rest of God I want to reread. Emotionally healthy spirituality, things like that. Also, uh, do some writing, not necessarily to be published, but do some writing. May take an online course for executive pastors, we'll see. But I mainly want to be focused on uh, the rest and uh, just sort of a recovery time. So looking forward to that. Now, close, I have to think that probably some of these people are wondering what's up with this, you know, sabbatical, you know, thing happening at Cornerstone. Part of our, 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 our employee manual is that when you serve for six years in our staff in a full-time capacity, you earn a sabbatical. And this is a, a thing that's been normal in church world, but it's starting to happen in the business world. I was with a friend of mine this week uh, who is an executive in a company, and um, in their company, for every three years you serve, they give you one month of sabbatical. Their CEO takes a sabbatical for one month every summer. And I said, man, you guys, is that a lot of people? He said, yeah, we had seven people on sabbatical last year. I said, did you guys struggle as a company? He said, no, we grew 62% as a company, um, even as we're offering this pattern of work and rest. And so I think it's great that you guys are doing it and leading out in the church in that. And so we want to celebrate that. So thanks for sharing. Give him a round of applause. So uh, before we close today, I want to lead you guys through some next steps and then a quick exercise. So if you have your hand up, turn it over to the back, and there's some things we've put there for you. One of the steps you could take following this message is to first identify your most important work during this season. Like right now, in this season of your life, what is your most important work? Notice I didn't say your job or your occupation because not everybody in this room is employed and pulling a paycheck. But what is your most important work right now that should have your attention and your presence? Number two, and this is a little bit harder, I'd encourage you to ask someone you love and trust, how am I doing at being present? You might not like what you hear, but you will only know unless you ask. You will only know that place that you need to work on until you ask. And then number three, I'd encourage you to practice Lectio Divina one day this week. And if you've never heard of that, I'm going to teach you it right now. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, there was a guy named Benedict, and he was leading a group of monks, priests who lived cloistered in a monastery. But those monks began to go out and work in the field, and Benedict wanted to help them to be present with God in their work and in their rest back in the monastery. And so he created a process through which he helped them to pay attention to God during their work, and he called it Lectio Divina, which is Latin for divine reading. And right now, I'm going to teach you this practice, and there's a link on your handout where you can go and learn more later. So I'm going to ask the guys in the back to turn the lights down. I'm going to ask you to put your stuff away that's in your hand. I'm going to ask you to stop texting the person about where you're going for brunch later today. 
And just for a second, pay attention and be present here. Once your stuff is put away, I'm going to ask you to, to sit up in your chair straight, not leaned over. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, put your palms on your thighs, face up in a, a posture of receiving, and take one big, deep breath. And right now, I want you to consciously open up your heart and mind for whatever God wants to speak to you today. I want you to pray and ask his Holy Spirit to show you and illuminate what he wants you to see in his word. And I want you to thank God in advance for being a God who speaks to those who will listen. Amen. Now I'm going to show you in a second a verse of scripture on the screen and we're going to read through it silently twice. And as you read it, I just want you to notice for what sticks out to you. What, what you notice, what, what seems interesting to you, what grabs your attention, okay? We're going to read through it one more time, and I'm going to ask you to pay attention for what God leads your attention to, what you notice, what stands out to you, a word or a phrase. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and allow your mind to focus in on that one phrase or that one word that stuck out to you. And I want you to thank God for speaking to you and illuminating his word to you and directing you to that phrase or that word.
God, we want to pay attention to you today. We want to see you today. We want to know that you're at work around us today. And so we pray as we go forward today that through this word you've spoken to us each uniquely, we would see and experience you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now on your handout, before you go, I want you to write down what that word or that phrase is. Write it down before you go. If you don't have anything to write down with, put it in your phone, text it to somebody. And then at the end of the day today, before you go to bed, I want you to pull out a piece of paper or a journal, and I want you to write down what your experience was. I can't tell you what God is going to do. That's not my role. But I can tell you what's happened for me on numerous occasions when I've practiced Lectio Divina. God started stalking me. Through that word. And that's my prayer for you. That God would show himself real and active in a personal way in your life through the word he's spoken to you. Because when we become present with God, it's amazing how present he is with us. Would you stand so we can close in prayer today? Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.